0: One, two, three,
1: four Welcome to Crazy Chester
0: Welcome to the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. My name is Andreas Warner. I'm a record producer, songwriter and owner of Crazy Chester Records. The theme song you just heard is performed by Wet Willie's Jimmy Hall and Funky Chester. The Crazy Chester Radio Hour is a weekly music talk podcast featuring an eclectic group of guests with musical hearts, minds and souls. And many of the episodes will dive deep into the rich history of music mecca muscle shows. My guest today is Mark Normore. Mark is a hit songwriter, artist, and musician who had his songs recorded by Josh Turner, John Michael Montgomery, Shenandoah, Black Hawk, Craig Morgan, Alabama, Brandy Clark, and many others. His song, That's What I Love About Sunday, was the most performed song on country radio in 2005. Mark has been a good friend and collaborator of mine for several years, and in 2016 I had the pleasure of producing his most recent album, The Soul Wurlitzer. Mark, welcome to the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. Thank you so much for being my guest today.
2: Uh, Andreas, always great to hang with you in any form or fashion, buddy. Thanks.
0: Yeah, I mean, for people that don't know, we our friendship goes back six seven years i guess by now
2: sure does man
0: and we've had the opportunity to write songs together and to record an album together too
2: yes indeed it's been fun all along the way we've been able to eat a few good uh country meat and three meals together too and talk about muscle shows and nashville and memphis and all kind of music history
0: absolutely and you know just the hang time and the the lunch time is is as precious as the songwriter time
2: it's crucial yes indeed
0: absolutely and sometimes one result you know is kind of an idea might start at the at the restaurants oh
2: most definitely usually it does doesn't it you know there's something about eating and breaking bread and fellowshipping you know it's uh it's a southern thing it's a country rural thing but it's it's a world thing too we all like to break bread and and sit together in fellowship
0: yeah and you've had a lot of success being a songwriter I, I guess the your most well-known song is that's what i love about sunday yes indeed uh-huh and uh you've been doing this for 30, 32 years 32 years now
2: yeah, you know, probably a little more than that, but I say 32 because I signed with Rick Hall at Fame in 1986. Uh, actually, I was write, writing like 84, and Ava Aldridge was sort of taking me under her wing. And Woody Richardson, whom you've, you've heard a lot about from Lexington, he had a little studio on called Woodrich, and it had a little 8-track uh, machine in there. Uh, But so really with Ava and Woody, I started about 84, but professionally, I'd I'd say 86 because I got to sign at Fame.
0: So if we like peel back time all the way, what's some of your earliest memories of music? I know Spooner Oldham is your first cousin, so I know that. Played in some, but what, what's some of your first memories of music or being you, around music?
2: Being around music, my dad had this uh, old phonograph, and if you remember how you could stack, like, he could seem like, seemingly stack eight or ten albums, you know, that, that, and it would change the albums automatically. You would, like, put, do you remember those? Yeah. Uh, so it would drop, and the, the, the albums that were dropping onto my dad's turntable would be like the carter family like sweet
1: fern i don't know if you, you just sweet fern sweet fern oh tell me is your darling still true sweet fern sweet fern i'll be just as happy as you
2: so i was hearing that also he liked tennessee ernie ford which was, you know, sixteen tons. Um he had some local gospel acts that maybe recorded in Lexington at that Woodrich studio I was telling you about, uh bands, singing groups that were from around Center Star or Killin or Lexington. And there were four or five of those and I, I can't remember some of most of the songs, but like Jesus met a woman at the well would have been one of them By the Quorum Trio
1: It's like Well, Jesus met a woman at the well Jesus met a woman at the well Jesus met a woman at the well And he told her everything she had done She had done
2: So those were my earliest musical memories. Andres is my daddy playing those records. He used to work uh, what he called the graveyard shift, you know, the the overnight shift at Reynolds Metals there in the Shoals, which was a big employer. Uh, He worked 30 years at Reynolds Metals. And when he would come in trying to go to sleep, that was his sort of meditative, get me to sleep type music, you know. was the Carter family and Tennessee Ernie Ford and uh, Hank Williams was in that mix too man I saw the light and and all those Hank hits so I sort of had uh, you know it's kind of fun to look back a lot of country music on on those first recollections of music and gospel too
0: yeah you want to do a little bit of I saw the light
1: yeah heck yeah Just like a blind man, I wandered along. Long was the way, farther and gone. Just like a blind man that had lost his sight, praise the Lord! I saw the light. I saw the light. I, I saw, saw the light. light. No more darkness. No, no more. happy no sorrow inside praise the lord i saw the
2: light and hank will have to forgive me i made up some of the words to that verse but
0: well, that's the beautiful thing about those old songs that kind of came a- came part of you know just public domain mm-hmm. not necessarily as far as copyright but as far as the consciousness i guess right that you kind of make it your own and you reiterate it you know and it goes down different generations certain things might change or might be adapted to the particular time and setting but the spirit will always be carried on
2: that's a beautiful way to put it there on that we all kind of sort of make it our own we put our own art and our own heart into it right
0: yeah and uh, you know early we uh we attended rick hall's funeral a couple of days ago mm-hmm. and uh, john paul white and james leblanc performed a version of of uh, amazing grace to the music of house of the rising suns yeah. which we looked it up a little bit and i think both of us heard the uh, blind boys of alabama do that version first which mm-hmm. is the same lyric and the same melody over a different chord progression, and I think right. that's a good example of reviving something or re- have a new interpretation of of an old old piece of music.
2: That's a perfect example example of it. In the uh, the House of the Rising Sun has that uh, relative mi- minor uh, feel, doesn't it? Yeah. I can't remember all the chords on that one. That was it the animals that had house the rising sun yeah, they, they had, had the head um, they kind of had a few little off chords in there that i off the top of my head <laughs> they were really cool chords mm-hmm. though
1: yeah man yeah Yes,
2: indeed.
0: So uh, uh, these were some of your earliest memories of music. Now when we started preparing our album together, we listened to a lot of songs, and one of the songs you play me was called Mama's Carport. Exactly. which is yeah. about you and I guess some of your friends yeah. starting some of your early bands and practicing at home. Can you yeah. tell me a little bit like so, some of your early uh, years of, of actually playing music?
2: Yeah, the early years of, of playing, uh, my Aunt Merle, uh, Uncle Johnny and Aunt Merle, they were remodeling their house when I was about five and a half years old, Andreas, and uh, they asked my mom if they could place their old upright piano, store it at our house, say for six months, until they refurbished their living room. I started picking out melodies almost immediately. I mean, nothing elaborate or fancy, but I could, my mom saw that I had a musical talent because I could pick out tunes to popular songs that I'd heard on that, that piano well she kept it she said no you can't have it back we're gonna buy it from you <laughs> and thank my mom for that for recognizing you know the, the talent at a young age but as I went along it was a slow process I was an only child Andreas, so um, I did have friends but I also had plenty plenty of time to be by myself sort of an uh, introversion factor with me uh learning to play the piano, I taught myself. So every week or every month or every year, I would learn another chord or another lick. And it seems like that kept happening, you know, six years old, seven, eight, nine, ten. Uh, I remember the point where I learned how, that there were different, like A flat, that there were yeah. different keys. I learned that on my own. And it was like a uh, kind of like a miracle worker. Ann Sullivan meets Helen Keller type moment I'm going like you're kidding I can play these songs but in a different key like in the key of A and I figured out you know that each key had the uh, it's on one, four, five, uh, the number system in other words so yeah. when I figured that out I started like you know playing an A flat and then I would play songs in the key of B and I just didn't stick to C anymore so that, that was a watershed rosetta stone if you will moment but by the time 10 or 11 years old i would play some in church they would get me up uh, to play or sing a gospel song or something like that but at the same time i was playing and learning on this piano i was listening to wqlt fm stereo radio that was coming in sounding great um, in my little radio in my room and the, the 70s were just inundating me with greatness i couldn't almost couldn't believe what i was hearing like um like alan o'day undercover angel um i'm just bringing random uh, songs from that era uh blinded by the light manfred man earth manfred man his earth band uh jackson brown to poco to the eagles uh, i was just and even the harder rock stuff i was really digging into kiss
0: so that was have been like
2: the mid 70s mid 70s i was really into the band kiss um it was kind of uh against mom and dad's wishes any mom and dad's wishes that your son or daughter had like all those kiss albums because they had the makeup and they had songs and the the lyrics you know they might have been a little bit if not r-rated at least (laughs) pg-13 but as i went along speaking of that rock those rock songs and I was listening to Kansas and Boston. By the time I was 13 or 14, a buddy of mine at church, again, church plays big into my life. As you know, Brent Phillips had a guitar and an amp. I mean, it was a Bentley guitar. It was like pretty cheapo model guitar, but we started getting together and at his house, he had a, a piano, like a console piano that, you know, in their den so we would sit there and just jam and uh we started playing little small talent shows around the area at like age 14 he may have been 16 uh we really weren't that good but man it it, we felt like rock stars you know we were playing songs like knocking on heaven's door at high school talent shows that we would sign up for you know they would um, have talent shows back then where you could uh just get in on the you know show your showcase your talent but uh, those were the beginnings then by age 16 brent and i progressed and we wanted to get some more people we wanted to have a real band so we asked rusty moody whom whom you know he plays guitar great guitar player daryl triplett who owns the sound shop who actually i bought the guitar you're playing from uh, that washburn <laughs> hey daryl and Anthony Duckworth on bass, who is in Huntsville, Alabama, into uh, the medical profession uh, these days. And Keith Davis and Joe Hudson were both drummers at the time. And both of these cats, man, they had some dynamic drum kits, dress. So it was kind of neat. With all this gear, where are we going to play? We, we had to spill out onto my mama's carport. And uh, Joe Hudson had some Pearl drums, you know, a brand new kit. Everybody was getting kind of big amps. PV was huge because we were into Southern rock, Andres and uh, bands like Leonard Skinner, Molly Hatchet, man, Almond. You know, it was like, well, I'm not sure about the Almond Brothers, but Southern bands were playing PV, PA's and amps. So we had all PV. We were covering songs from Atlanta Rhythm Section, Leonard Skinner, Molly Hatchet, um, Blackfoot, Black Oak Arkansas. So you can tell, uh, as Southern boys, we were just—that's uh, all we wanted to do—is play Southern rock music. So that was my first band. It was called Stillbrook, S-T-I-L-L Brook, and we played a few college, not college, high school dances. Uh, like homecoming dances and proms and things like that and the skating rink we played overnight gig like from four in the morning to six four to six a.m. one time (laughs) all night skate
0: yeah my first guitar amp was a pv2 wow and i think you know they were just slightly more Affordable too than some of the you know marshals and fenders out there, certainly
2: they were. They're very durable, you could throw them out of a truck, right? And yeah, they just bounce and you go back transistor. Most
0: of them, I think. Yes, and uh, did you um ever get any sorts of lessons, or it are you all self taught?
2: Did have some lessons during that point when my mom bought the piano, six years old, she uh got me some piano lessons from a lady named uh, Carla Thornton and Carla was a sweetheart she was trying to teach me but I what I would do uh, these were pretty simple songs you know I would get get Carla to play me the song a few times and I would memorize it play it back and pretend I was reading the music something clued her that I wasn't looking at the pay the you know the sheet music and she she kind of knew I was memorizing the songs and and playing the back, so she called my mom and said, Mrs. Normore, you know, Mark is, I hate to take your money, he's not uh, learning, you know, he already knows how to play by ear, so he's really not learning to read the notes. Same thing happened at age 10. Joan Rickard, who was a really good teacher, I had her, um, and then Kathy McPeters, so I had three great uh piano teachers but they all saw that within the first month i was mimicking what they were playing and just playing it back to them i couldn't couldn't read the notes at all zero
0: and you also if 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 conscious or not you had another teacher around you and that is spooner your first cousin oh
2: my gosh exactly how did he
0: influence you or how did you you know knowing what he's been accomplishing could be something that right that, that it, you could aspire it, to as well
2: it would have been about age six or seven i was telling you about my dad's turntable on that same turntable he they had a couple of records that spooner had either written or had played on so one of them i remember was called the roadmaster and it was by freddie weller freddie who's well. a buddy of of spooners and maybe they co-wrote it possibly is there maybe I think
0: certainly certain songs on that record
2: yeah the Roadmaster so and I'm, I'm looking at the credits on there and I see Spooner Oldham and um, we called Spooner Lyndon and we still do in the family so I probably asked my mom S- Spooner Oldham uh, you know is, is that related to Lyndon Oldham and she goes yeah that that is Lyndon <laughs> that's his nickname and (laughs) so and I thought wow so he's writing these songs for you know for Freddie Weller and she's my mom told me yeah and he's played on Aretha Franklin who's a big artist now you know I was a kid so I thought man that is pretty cool so he's playing writing songs and playing on these artists records so by age seven or eight I think I had a real cognizance of spooners doing this really cool thing i sort of want to be trying to do that too he had moved from muscle shells to memphis dress, and then at that time he was in los angeles playing on lots of different sessions from jim croce uh my goodness to linda ronstadt when he would come home though like once per year at christmas um i had a little tape recorder you know the little uh actual cassette tape recorder and I would get Spooner like off in a room where there was a piano. And I know he probably didn't want to to do it. I mean, he played music all the time. Who wants to do their job when they're at Christmas dinner, you know, with family, but he was so nice to me. um, I would ask him just to play for me and I would turn the tape recorder on. And you know what, I would throw out requests and it will be songs. I had him recording uh, Dock of the Bay, which I'm sure he didn't play on that song. But he played it uh, just off the top of his head, a rendition that was so good, I thought, my gosh, this man is a masterful keyboard guy to begin with. But to just play it without ever playing it before. The same way I got him to play a song called The Sting, The Entertainer. Do you remember that? Yeah. Ragtime song. He. Had, he said, well, I've never played it before, but I'll I'll try to knock it out for you. And he did this version of it that was just unbelievable, this alternate bass mm-hmm. notes that were, it was just unreal. So mm-hmm. really, that was a big teacher for me were those cassette tapes where I'd play them back, basically learn every lick that he did. So I just emulated uh, what Spooner was doing on that.
0: Yeah, and... When did you see a studio from inside for the first time? Let's Can you see, remember that?
2: For the first time, that would have been Woodridge, which was Lexington, Alabama, which is like 14 miles away. Woody Richardson had started a studio in 1968 in an old house and had moved to the town of Lexington, built a cinder block, and you know he had the burlap, he had the ISO booths, Neumann microphones, so good sounding little studio Um, he actually had some of the spillover work say from Fame and Muscle Shell Sound and they they had lots of uh, people with record deals recording so there were plenty of people that maybe had a garage band or a church group Uh, you know the spillover groups that couldn't necessarily afford to record at Fame or maybe couldn't book time there because it was so booked. Woody would get all these spill over artists and I would go and stick my head in as a 14 year old and just be amazed. Woody would let me uh, sit in on the sessions. I actually got to play on a couple of the sessions maybe by the time I was 16 or 17. I remember a black gospel group called the Rocket City Harmonizers and it's one of those songs that vamped for like 15 minutes at the end and (laughs) we i remember just so getting into that but woody woody studio yeah he had like some uh out minimal outboard gear but some uri limiters and just um universal audio equipment and allen and heath board i remember he had that so that was the first one um in lexington alabama it's no longer a studio anymore
0: yeah and then you and you, you tell me a little bit more about the timeline but you also started working in radio right how did that gig come about
2: yeah it wasn't far apart time wise when I was going to Woodridge would have been in the years like 1979 something like that about four or five years later um, I was first year of college andreas 1983-84 i was recording little demos at home i had a fostex four track recorder and a pv amp head for my board that had reverb on it and a Wurlitzer piano and i had a bass and i had a drum it's called drum drops it was a record vinyl record that had different drum tracks different rhythms i would find you know a, a drum track I like, put it down, I would record a bass track, a Wurlitzer track, and I would learn to, that's where I learned to sing harmony, on that little Fostex 4 track, but uh, I was doing those demos, and I had recorded some demos at Woodridge, and also one at Fame, Uh, piano, vocal, maybe uh, Mark Hall and I were friends, so maybe we added like a bass or a guitar, but I was going and wanting to play those original songs on local radio. I was just, I was green. I didn't know how to get it done. I was just taking these demos myself, uh, going to different radio stations. And most of the stations in the area were nice, you know, nice. And they'd say, no, we're, we don't play, you know, it's got to be a, a record on a major label or something like that. that, that was the, That was a nice answer, but they would let me in. Well, WLX in Lexington let me in, played my songs, and did an interview with me, and I was so nervous. Eddie Landtroop, who's still on the air in Lawrenceburg, uh, set me down for an interview, and he played my song. I think I'd recorded it, Andres, at Fame. Uh, pretty rough looking back sound, but it was an original you song. you
0: re- remember what it was called? It
2: was called Holding You Tight if holding you tight going to keep me up nights I'll sleep in the daytime and dream about you let me see if I remember it
1: if holding you tight going to keep me up nights I'll sleep in the daytime and dream about you if holding you It's gonna change bark to bite, then I'll hold you so tight all night.
2: I mean, that's one of my first songs that I tried to write. I mean, it was, you know.
0: Is that the one you recorded at Fame?
2: Fame with Mark Hall, yeah. yeah. And it probably had piano, maybe a drum machine seems like we put a drum machine and a bass and maybe but Eddie played that and then he interviewed me and you know what I was first year college so I didn't really have a job and I was pretty pretty free wasn't tied down Eddie said Mark you have a really really good voice you know Um, and you know what our afternoon guy called in and he quit this morning (laughs) could I teach would you like to learn how to do this radio job and I said well why not man that'll be fun so within like 30 minutes he had showed me how to cue the records he showed me where the news came up it had like a a pot on the board the big knobs the pots that you turn and here's where NBC News comes up and there was a clock and NBC News came up right at the top of the hour so you could fade your song down and he showed me how to do the weather you know and it was basically I always thought that when you hear and see, hear radio, you think, boy, I bet that's all scripted and yeah, and everything. It's all perfected, but it was basically just scribbled down on a piece of scratch paper. Partly cloudy today, high of 73, low tonight, uh, 64. Partly sunny tomorrow, you know. And I started doing that. I was so nervous the first, at least the first week, every time I turned the mic on, you could hear a shaky Voice, <laughs> but radio w- was fun. I mean, it. W- I didn't love it as much as I loved the music and the songwriting, but it was secondary in there. And it's been a thing. I've been able to go back to and have it as a trade, and um, it's fun to do cut commercials.
0: Yeah. So at that time, you you'd already been songwriting, and how did that opportunity at fame come about for you to be actually be signed to fame and be a professional songwriter
2: we're in good sequence because from the time I started there in radio in 84 two years after that uh, I'd been working at WLX for a couple of years I changed radio stations to WVNA in Tuscumbia Alabama I went from playing country music George Jones Haggard and the like, Vern Gosden, to playing, say, the Bangles, you know, Bananarama, Venus, (laughs) you know, Wham, Duran Duran. Um, We were playing that kind of stuff. So, the station was involved in a Kentucky Fried Chicken Songwriters contest. Um, The owner there was Maudie Darby Bedford and uh, Linda, her now uh, niece, and they knew that I had you know been working on writing some songs I was a pretty shy guy and I didn't play my songs to people much but somehow they had maybe heard me playing them you know in a back room or something and they really wanted me to get in this contest Rick Hall was the judge locally this was 1986 and I I was very skeptical of any contests. I mean I don't know why I just had the feeling that well, I'm sure it's all rigged and blah 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 but I had this song called I can see me in your eyes and I had rented an eight-track Fostex recorder from uh, Big Will then it was Big Bear Audio in Sheffield and I, r- I rented a board I just wanted to have some recording gear at home for a week or two and just put down some of my songs you know in a demo form So I played everything on it. I had a bass guitar on it. I think I played Wurlitzer, of course, with a chorus pedal or some kind of effect. Um, The drums would have been a drum machine, like a Roland 707 uh, of the era there. And I Can See Me In Your Eyes, I did the, the harmonies, you know, maybe double the harmonies so I had a pretty good sounding little demo on it that I had cut at home well I entered that and they took it over to Rick Hall and he listened and he was you know it's hard to floor Rick Hall but they said he was like of the contestants mine was definitely head and shoulders above so that being said I won locally and it went into the national field um, which was like 41,000 entrants Okay, uh, of those forty-one thousand, it made it to like number nine of, of the forty-one thousand. So Rick, at some point, I think he was following it, and he, he, you know, he liked the song and liked what I was doing. Do Called me at the radio station in nineteen eighty-six and said, "Would you like to come and be a Fame writer?" And I'm like, "Oh, my heart went and you know into my stomach." I'm like, "Well, of course." Yeah.
0: Do you remember any of that song by any chance? Uh,
2: I
1: can see me
0: in your eyes,
1: I can see right through the other guys that used to love you nights. Nice. Now I know that with your love I could never get enough. I can see me in your
2: eyes. Something like that. Some yeah. facsimile thereof.
0: So, uh, Rick, you know, is offering you that job, and, you, and we talked earlier today, and you said, you know, if that would have been the Peak of your career, being able to ride for fame, you would have probably been fine yeah, with it.
2: You know, if I, yeah, if that had, that, that's really kind of a wild thought. But like the first thing you ever do, yeah, that could have been the pinnacle of my success, and I would have been happy. I would but be a happy in manner. many
0: ways, it was just the beginning.
2: It was just the beginning, right? So exactly.
0: from there, tell me a little bit about how you progressed from there till your first. Cut, oh which my became gosh. a big hit
2: yeah 86 to 89 was that rick hall fame boot camp that we've talked about before and i'm you're so glad to have gone through it later but when you're going through it it's it's tough it's intimidating and it's all of the above i was a young guy there and um boy i was scared of rick he was so larger than life because he had had so much success And he was just this cool character, you know. I mean, he was very confident and, you know, a kingpin, just a boss man. And I was very intimidated. I wanted to – everybody wanted to please Rick, and I I did too with my songs. So I was trying to write – at the time, we were trying to pitch songs to Nashville quite a bit. Um, So I was writing country songs and what was on the radio. Couldn't get a rise out of Rick – on any of those not to the point where I would sort of get mad and frustrated I'm I'm like he's trying to to be again you know he is uh, antagonizing me well what I didn't know I mean he, he had done everybody before me that way that was his style of motivation and like you say once you make it through that school it's like a uh, Nick Saban or you know a coach or a Bear Bryant or a you really appreciate it and it helps you grow not only in music but in life but I yeah I'll tell you I mean he was very tough on me because I was uh I was an easygoing dude and pretty shy so I was pretty <laughs> I, you know it was kind of easy to run over anyway but um he really made me stretch um and just keep rewriting that was the thing of he was always about rewriting the song mark you've got to rewrite it and rewrite and rewrite to the nth degree and I was doing that and I was progressing some but I still wasn't ringing his bell you know he was what wasn't really writing a what he thought was a hit or hit songs so during 1989 I was just bound and determined or I was going to quit I was going to write Rick something he liked or something that was a hit that somebody around there especially him would consider a hit song you know great and I don't know where it had to have been somewhere deep within me because I I really don't know how it, it came about um I had this title called I'll take you over Saturday night any day which it was that wasn't a really good song but it it used the contrast you know the antithesis the uh, polar opposites you know I'll take uh, and it had over I liked the blank over blank so I took out those words and just started substituting words I'll take blank over blank and I had a whole page full of just random stream of consciousness thoughts but somehow I had in that mesh of uh blank over blank there was a moon one of the lines said moon over georgia and that just struck me as looking and sounding very poetic i didn't know really what it was about um that's that's sort of the next part of the story moon over georgia sounded like a nice angelic kind of uh sweet poetic sounding title because there's the moon in georgia and that all sounds right even uh, sounded the cadence of it sounded good speaking it without even singing it you know moon over Georgia for some reason um it's like another one of those Helen Keller meets Anne Sullivan Rosetta Stone moments I figured out that moon could equate to a poor guy in a song if it was a story song for, you know the moon could equate that could be the, the poor guy uh, like
0: the poor guy's son. Like, yeah. Like you get the son. and Right, the and yeah, the four, yeah,
2: exactly. And, the, and Georgia is the rich guy with the, the uh, Ted Turner type with the big sky rise, a skyscraper, high-rises in downtown Atlanta. And the poor guy was in Savannah or somewhere out in the country, you know. Well, maybe he wasn't in Savannah. <laughs> Savannah's a pretty opulent place. He was out, you know, in uh, Dalton, Georgia, somewhere like that. But once I figured out th- that that could be a story song and Moon could be the poor guy, it was Katie the door. I knew I had a, a hit title. I knew it. I just knew. And I knew I had to write it correctly, and I knew it had to be perfect for Rick Hall. And also, he had this new band called Shenandoah that he had, had recorded, and I thought maybe it could even be something for them. In my mind, i thought maybe if he likes it well enough maybe he'll record it on this band so i worked six months and i would take it over to to play for mark hall and he would give me some some feedback no you know it's not there yet so i had like probably 20 legal pads full of moon over georgia i had written it for six months every day i rewritten 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 so many different versions the more I would rewrite "Andreas," the more succinct and simpler the song became and the shorter the lines became because I was kind of like from the Nashville school of uh, liking what was going on in Nashville a lot of lyric well as as I went along I was stripping away lyric and it was becoming really simple and the phrasing became simpler and the version that that came out at the end um, was more universal and simplistic than my complex convolution of you should have seen what I had at my start it was very convoluted
0: yeah and you 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 mentioned that you kind of thought well it would be nice that if Shenandoah will cut it which eventually happened right but it didn't get cut by them first is that it, right.
2: it didn't um, we demoed it and actually Marty Rabin sang on the demo and he sounded great on it I finished the song and, and got it to where where I liked it and where Mark Hall liked it and I think Rick um, I'm not sure if he had heard it yet Mark was over the publishing company so it was played for Rick and this was a disappointment and Rick passed on it for Shenandoah when I first wrote it and demoed it so that's a real hurdle I struggle and I struggle to please Rick and I really write what I know is the best song I, I dug deeper than I thought I could I wrote beyond myself Andres in other words I, I sort of reached somewhere that I knew was beyond my talent beyond anything It was something spiritual, something I reached and got it because Rick Hall pushed the buttons and made me do it.
0: Yeah, and then it got Rick passed on it, but it still got recorded.
2: Yeah, that was a letdown. Rick passed on it, so I'm like, you know, uh, kind of depressed a little bit about that. But Mark Hall took it to Nashville, played it for Buddy Cannon, who was at PolyGram Records on music row at the time he's a super producer and writer loved moon over georgia for a guy called named larry boone who had had a couple of hits uh, don't give candy to a stranger so i'm thinking cool larry boone I, i love his songwriting larry boone is a killer songwriter so at first it was an honor that a songwriter as good as larry would think of recording a song i wrote it was almost a single on Larry Boone. It, it was not, but it was uh, it, it was in contention to be a single. Had it been a single, uh, Shenandoah would have never recorded it. So a few months go by, Larry Boone does not release it as a single. So it comes time at the end of 1989, Shenandoah is about to record their record. Um, Marty Raven and Mike McGuire were advocating this song and I didn't even know it. They, they'd been playing it for Rick and, and telling him we need to cut this song. And they, they were advocating for me and Jim Seals, unbeknownst to me. I think that like an older brother, they were like 10 or 12 years older than me, and I was in my early 20s. I think they were protecting me a little bit from the brunt of bad news. If they didn't decide to cut it, then... I would have had some bad news to face if they did cut it they would tell me so they were really sort of protective of me that way Shenandoah those guys were
0: yeah and he made the cut and it didn't only make the cut he became a big hit for that it
2: it did and it was back then artists would go four, sometimes five singles deep on one record Um. It sounded so good, and it was another watershed moment that I remember, I can't believe I got this cut. Uh, it sounds so good. The band played so well. Rick uh, produced it and Robert Byrne, Marty Raven's vocal. It sounds so good, but it was track nine on the record, which was a little worrisome because a lot of times, I'm not sure if it still happens today, they, front they front-load load the load album with the single. The singles, so I sort of... Got a feeling single one, two, and three came, and my song wasn't a single. I'd sort of given up hope, really. Rick tells me this, that Joe Casey, one of the promo men, they had had four singles. I'm sorry, four singles. Shenandoah was actually leaving Columbia Records going to another record label, so you can imagine the promotion team. Shenandoah's leaving. The promotion team's kind of not giving it their full hundred percent for this fifth single which happened to be mine but rick said joe casey lobbied for that single and if it hadn't been for joe it, it wouldn't have been a single so i'm thankful to him okay so rick calls me in the office son well actually mickey buckins took me to lunch and told me this news at this little meet and three And uh, he got a big old grin on his face. and He said, man, I need to tell you some news, Mark. You've got the next Shenandoah single. And I'm like, nearly dropped my plate, you know. (laughs) And and we went back and uh, we talked about it. It was released and it was doing, I mean, it was doing okay. It was like 60 to 50 to 58. And Rick called me and he said, we need to get some, some promotion on this record so he said i'm gonna put two or three independent promoters on this and i said yeah I'm, I'm totally in on that if i need to to help in any way you know so i think we may might have split split cost on one of the the promoters there and he took care of the other ones but it really uh the song really had had a good movement over course of like thirty or forty weeks and went to number I think it was nine in Billboard, five in R and R. It it did that on Dress as sort of a last ditch single with not much promotion from the record label because that group was headed already headed to another place, you know. So it just goes to show you um that's sort of been my life, you know, little miracles, uh, maybe for all of us. Miracles like that. Yeah,
0: And you were at Fame for 11 years?
2: 11 years. You
0: had more cuts. I think probably like There Ain't No Yesterday.
2: Like There Ain't No Yesterday with Walt Aldridge. Yeah,
0: that was a Blackhawk single. Was it yeah. number two, number three, something?
2: Yeah, it was a number two uh, single, with uh, co-wrote with Walt Aldridge. And as we've talked about before, Walt was such a mentor and a great teacher for all of us at Fame. And in general in the songwriting community but because we all got to hang with him and sort of learn from him at Fame um, he, yeah he was uh, I don't even know how to put beyond words but his songwriting was at a level uh, super high it was off the chart it was higher than any of us for sure or so we thought you know um, his musicality was superb I mean he was a great player singer not only that his lyrics just And Nashville has always been a lyric town so uh, Walt was a genius lyricist so you had me and Mike McGuire and Daryl Worley and Stephen Dale Jones under the tutelage of, of Walt Aldridge there and Robert Byrne was there too so some greats to learn from
0: yeah and although you lived in the Shoals all your life, in 97, when you left Fame, you signed with the Nashville Publishing Company. Yeah. Well, the we, and I guess from there, you started commuting Yeah, uh, between I, Nashville and the Shoals. I so sure,
2: sure did. To, to Reba McIntyre, Starstruck music there, Starstruck Angel music. And it was such a Taj Mahal building. I'd went from, you know, uh, Muscle Shoals and Center Star Alabama you know my humble uh, home place there to this Taj Mahal building on Music Row I mean I was a little intimidated to be honest that we had card keys we could drive down in the garage we had a you know elevators and it was just marble I mean it looked like a New York kind of building with the glass and the marble and um, it, it was so fun I mean I felt like I uh, I really felt like a king there I really honestly did things happened um, where the company was sold after about two years so I was out of a deal the only cuts I remember getting there I got a cut on Tyler England which Garth Brooks produced and as far as I know that's the only other outside artist that Garth ever you know had production credit on very proud of that but it was called I drove her to Dallas uh Tyler England and then after that was a scary period uh when you lose a deal you have a family and kids man it it can be a dark uh, time because you don't know what you're gonna do at that point I sort of I kept looking in Nashville this was at a point on dress the Garth era in the 90s was a fat era and songwriters were getting big big draws by the end of the 90s it seemed like that era had popped and songwriters were getting cut from rosters and they were getting less draws so I was having trouble I was making meetings each week meeting every week with publishers but it took nearly a year to land another deal in the meantime I went back to radio there you go with my little industry I have my pocket there I could pull out and and go to radio, which was crucial and life saving at the time. Nineteen ninety nine was about two thousand, about Y two K is the timeline for that.
0: Okay. And after that year, is that when you signed with Jody Williams?
2: The at the end of that year I signed with a company called March Music and that's where I met Adam Wheeler who's been my co-writer and great friend ever since um, March had been in town and they had Gail Davies and Du Lowens, but still a relatively small company but I was very pleased and it just kept me in the music business it kept me from quitting and uh, having to bow my head and go home and they were so, so good and nice. I was there for about a year. Jody Williams expressed interest uh, about a year after that. He and Liz Rose were working together, so they really dug what I was doing. And that's where things sort of begin to take off and take shape again. Um, there was a stable of great writers. Kim Patton Johnston was there, Josh Turner, Stephanie, and Nathan Chapman. Liz Rose I'm probably leaving somebody out but with that kind of talent at your disposal and in-house where you can write co-write with these people quite a bit I started getting cuts especially the stuff I was writing with Josh and Liz Rose um, started getting a lot of attention at the time
0: yeah and Josh became a well-known artist too and yeah. you've had cuts on pretty much all of his records every all record, through his career
2: yes indeed i mean it's a, a great friendship that started there at jody williams and we hit it off you know both being from very small towns and just really loving like Vern gosden george jones and uh, appreciating lyrical twists so yeah we we've uh, had a great career he's been so good to me to include me still on every album to this day.
0: Yeah, and we in our m- little hum- humble ways returned to favor and put one of his songs yes song, on Money your album. Money Tree, exactly. Uh and we'll we'll get to that a little bit more, but would you might maybe playing a song off, off of the record that we did. Yeah. How yeah. about You Live and Does Your Preaching? There you
2: go. Yeah. Yes.
1: Mama said, "Honey, don't forget your preacher." And I'm not talking about some big fancy church. You'll always be kind to a stranger, and your actions speak louder than words. She said one day when you have children No doubt they put you to the test Just know you can't scold them for something That you've been doing yourself Cause living, does your preaching Your sermon's how you live every day Is it a good or bad thing? Preach on, Andres Well, when it comes time to leave this world Fly to hear the angels sing the preachers stop preaching at funeral, Lord, he won't even have to say a thing. Cause you living, does your preaching? With sermons how you live every day. Is it a good or bad lesson you're teaching? Cause you're living, living, does your preaching? To preach yeah.
2: Sounding good over there, brother Andreas. <laughs> yes yeah. indeed.
0: That's a song that the two of us co wrote a little while ago and then we decided to include it on on your album. And now, it sorta
2: has a staple singer's feel, it's kind of what we set out kind I- of to do.
0: I think it was. I had kind of Delbert McClinton back in my mind a little bit yeah, too. Yeah, Delbert, exactly. But certainly with that message in it where it's just kind of like, you know.
2: Without being preachy, it's a very positive song, but it's not like a, uh, you know, in your face type thing.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So, anyway, picking up, you were with Jody Williams' music. Now. What led you from there to your biggest hit as a songwriter, which is, that's what I love about Sunday.
2: Yeah, um, Adam, it revolves around food again. Around 2004, Adam Dorsey, who was one of the stable of high caliber songwriters there, he was one of the horses, stallions in the stable, if you will, um, we, we had a co-write one afternoon and I was coming up from Muscle Shoals to Nashville, and he calls, he lived in Spring Hill. Let's meet in Franklin at this Chinese restaurant. I have a title I want to tell you about, and I think you'll like it. I think we'll be able to write it. So we had Chinese food there, and he said, that's what I love about Sunday. I wanna write a song about the goings on of Sunday, and since you've lived it, Mark, I mean, he, he just knew that I I could paint help him paint this song with all the necessary color, Southern color. So we pretty much wrote it, Andres, in an afternoon. We overwrote it. This song, it had those three rhymes, and it's fun to play with. Love about Sunday, did a little Hyundai, did a little one day, I mean, you know, there was the triplicate rhymes. So we went on and on, I we didn't even record some of that, we just, Um, Had a blast with it.
0: So There's like a 20 minute version somewhere. There there is it's
2: out there in space somewhere But we we didn't record it. Uh, We were still using tape recorders Even though of course CD and mp3s were around Adam and I were sort of old school I remember there was a tape recorder sitting there (laughs) and a cassette tape and we hit record and play and Adam knew this cat named Craig Morgan who had had a minor hit well I won't say a minor hit it was a number eight hit but it was on an in on an independent label which at the time was unheard of for an indie artist in 2005 to have a country hit I mean it just was not fathomable so Adam says well I've got my friend Craig Morgan interested in recording this song good and Jody and I and he you know we we're all like well that That's good. That's better than a kick in the butt is what we're thinking because Craig hadn't proved himself at the time. So we're thinking, okay. Um, Then Jody tells me about the end of September, my birthday in 2004. We're walking up the stairs there at the publishing company. Catherine Gooch game was also there and crucial uh, in our success around there. Jody says, uh, told me, and Catherine and the others, well, Mark's got the new Mark and Adam Dorsey have the new Craig Morgan single, and we're a little, you know, we're happy. We're not like, if it, we would been have been more happy or had it been a Tim McGraw single, <laughs> you know, or Alabama single, and so that was, the, what was the funny thing about it? Craig Morgan was on an independent label, Broken Bow, so we're thinking, okay, that the likelihood that that's gonna be a hit, it's not likely, boys and girls, so we go along, the thing enters the chart like at maybe 70. Every week it was taking these uh, five-notch jumps, ten-notch jumps, every week. And Tony Binkin at Broken Bow at the time, man, he went over and above in promoting this song. He kept in touch with us, and he he was getting with all the radio stations, and he they Broken Bow worked it and got us a six a five-week number one record and it was another little miracle in Mark Normore's life that um, I just have those miracles that uh, happen every once in a while that against all odds, this independent label had a number one record and set a precedent for other up and coming, you know, independent labels. For everyone involved with that song, dress. it was the first number one. It was my first number one as a writer My co-writers, first number one. The producer, Phil O'Donnell, his first number one. Craig Morgan's first. Broken Bow Records, uh, Benny over there and Tony Binkin, their first number one. Uh, The Engineer, I'm forgetting who worked on it. It was his first. Almost everybody on the record, it was their first number one.
0: And it was one of the biggest, if not the biggest, song of the year.
2: It, It was the... Billboard's most uh, performed song that year in 2005. And my buddy Bobby Tomberlin had done some research later and I didn't know this, he told me it was the number eight Billboard song of the 2000s decade. So I'm uh, I'm so proud to, to have had that.
0: Yeah, and that song has been good to you. And most recently, just a few weeks ago, it was performed on The Voice. Yes, indeed, man. And Red Marlowe, who was one of the finalists of this year's season, Um you've known him for a while. How, what's the story there?
2: Yeah, Red. I, I I knew Red in the early '80s, since he was a little boy, say like six years old. His dad was our preacher there in Center Star, Jerry Marlowe. Great preacher. I mean, a really one of those fervent gospel new testament preachers and jerry red's dad, so musical Um, great mandolin player electric guitar play that telecaster like anybody good as anybody in nashville he could play acoustic guitar and sing and so could red's mother they sang in a gospel group well during church uh, brother jerry the preacher he would sing red Would play bass and his feet would be dangling off the bass amp. And Wayne Marlowe would play acoustic guitar, the brother. Joyce would sing and I would play piano. This is through the 80s, uh, 1983 through 88. Spooner moved back to Alabama about 1989. So Red maybe had one year of getting to jam with Spooner every once in a while. But it's always fun to jam with Spooner. But that's, that's my history with Red. Then lately, we, we catch up with the, each other every year or two. and We've written some. He's been in Nashville 15 or more years. Red has himself. So we, we've written and, and caught up. But right before Christmas, I get this FaceTime call, and it's Red Marlowe, and I'm thinking, wow, that's cool. <laughs> Good to see you and hear from you, Red it's amazing that i have an iphone i'm glad i have an iphone because i've only had it a couple of years where i can do facetime (laughs) so they used that facetime conversation that evening on the voice and red had called to tell me he was going to perform that's what i love about sunday on the voice and i was like man i was elated and the producer talked to me afterward you know made sure it was okay i'm saying yes (laughs) yes indeed it's okay to use the FaceTime. I'm so flattered. Yes, indeed. Uh, so he 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 did so good on the voice this year. Um, opened up country music, real country music. Um, artists like um, Chris Stapleton and other artists in the past couple of years have sort of been opening up that little hole and letting people experience country music. Red Marlow took it to the next level with, with that show and the people he was able to reach and the songs that he was able to perform, like Vern Gosden, Shenandoah, Craig Morgan, and people were buying those iTunes versions of that song like hotcakes. I mean, after the show, each time they would have a recorded version, you know, that you could go on iTunes and purchase it. So I'm I'm proud for what Red was able to achieve for himself, but for country music in Nashville.
0: Yeah, and just a minute ago you mentioned uh, that Red got to, you know, play a little bit with Spooner, and yeah, we, sure, you know, you got to play with Spooner. Both of us have, yeah, and uh, both of us share a lot. You know, as far as musical taste and the love for Muscle Shoals, the area and its musicians. Yes. And especially characters like Spooner Oldham and Donnie Fritz. Oh, my goodness. Who are just kind of live and breathe that music. And in many ways, their worlds are playing is an extension of their being. Oh, yeah. And uh, when we made our album, we decided to call it this old Wurlitzer and uh, make it a tribute to these people. Yes. And uh, we uh, decided to uh, write a song as a tribute, which became the title song. And uh, and would you mind performing that? Oh my goodness, that'd be, be an honor.
1: I saw Ray Charles playing a whirletser on the TV. That electric piano blew my mind. Gospel tone straight from heaven. I knew I had to have one, and I've had this one in 79 when I sit down behind this piano it's like the music pours out of my soul oh it's been my go to When I get them old blues, it inspires me for I write all my songs on this old world, it's it's been a good friend through the highs and Broken down, so well I learned from Spooner Oldham and Funky Donnie Fritz. When I play, I lose track of the time. I'm so glad this piano is mine Yeah, this old old, 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 old world, it's it's like an angel With a crooked halo (laughs)
0: That's great.
2: Thanks for writing that with me. And we had fun. Thank you. And
0: Uh, your family is very important to you. Yes, indeed. Um, And you have a wonderful wife, Sandy, and two great kids. Yes. They're both... uh, gonna be really successful in their own right, I yeah, know. <laughs>
2: yes, indeed.
0: And somebody else that it's almost part of your family, though, um, entered your life, I guess, about around 10 years ago, and that is Hal Oven. Oh my, is my uh, gosh, Is your current yes. publisher and somebody who's, you know, nurtured, I guess, your career and has been a great friend a, to you. It's been How a, did you meet a him? a
2: super friend. After, uh, that's what I love about Sunday, the next year, Jody Williams decided to go to BMI, so he became the VP there. So the bulk, the riders uh, were taken over by Sony Tree, which was our co-venture partner. So we were at Sony Tree, I was there a couple of years, and just, there were so many riders there just didn't get it going, you know, just, it was at a, a time where they looking at the bottom line and they they let me go out of that deal so i had talked to hal back around 1999 i knew him and of course i knew adam wheeler adam gave me that my deal at march music when i came out of my deal had lost a deal at starstruck so adam and i had been writing like 2000, you know three actually 2002 and through that era, and we were writing some really good songs. Adam is a super talent, but anyway, he had signed with Noble Vision Music Publishing Company, to which uh, used to be a record label. And I spun Noble Vision Records when I was a disc jockey, playing Jim Glaser. Tony Rada was also on the label, so um, you know. I so I was meeting with publishers, and of course, I met with Hal Oven and Adam over here and Hal was was impressed and we just got to talking and, and it just seemed like a great fit because when I first signed at Fame it was more like a boutique company my first deal with with a few riders with a handful and Noble Vision had a handful, four or five riders it seemed like the perfect fit for what I liked and how I can operate well and it over the years hal has taught me so much he is a business guru he knows the ins and outs of everything about a record company publisher music business i can come to him with any question he's mentored me and i've, I've learned so much but also in uh he's just a great publisher man he knows a hit and he knows uh for example how to softly say mark you need to rewrite that such and such line in the second verse and he's always been right and we we've attended so many music concerts together it's become a kinship and a friendship and adam and will and Tanil and claire all the other writers that have been through here dean feel the same way it just becomes a family and they and they they he and susan treat treat us like family and you just have to love that that's nurturing for any writer any stage of development young or old um, to have that ability to write what you feel that's what they nurture us to do and you write plenty of it you know they expect us to write a lot of songs but with writing them how we want to and how we how we're feeling them and it's just it's been a wonderful ride here and i've had all the Josh Turner cuts I've had here with how we recently had an Alabama Christmas cut together on Alabama's new Christmas record. Brandy Clark record this past year that was nominated for a Grammy, uh, big day in a small town, that CD. We had a song on there. So we've had quite a few cuts together in 10 years. and um,
0: There's going to be more.
2: Oh yeah. Amen. Amen.
0: And, uh, we are. We've been, you know, talking for over an hour now, and oh, I know okay. you need to head down okay. to Muscle Shoals cool. too. Would you mind maybe, uh, I guess, closing the circle with with an old song by by uh, Sleepy John Estes? Oh, and all blues. yeah. It's kind of blue standard that Eric Clapton recorded, and Greg Allman, and uh, maybe yeah. we just kind of, you know, wrap it up with that.
2: 10. Amen. It's been been glad to hang with yonder Andres, as always. <laughs>
0: Thank you so much for being my guest today Mark.
2: Thank you Andre, it's been a pleasure brother
0: This was the 16th episode of the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. We taped it at Noble Vision Music in Nashville Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed it. Until next week <laughs>